Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Megan Cochran. Today, I welcome David Gushy to discuss his latest book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Reverend Professor Dr. David P. Gushy is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University and Chair of Christian Social Ethics at Freya Universität, or the Free University of Amsterdam. He is also Senior Research Fellow at the International Baptist Theological Studies Center. David Geshe was elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics. He has authored and edited many books and articles, including, but certainly not limited to, Kingdom Ethics, Changing Our Mind, and After Evangelicalism. This most recent book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, is beautifully written and very provocative, and I found it deeply compelling. In it, Dr. Gashi, you position the current focus of American evangelicals on these culture battles, on the culture battles regarding gender, race, faith, and freedom as part of a much longer and broader and deeper history that goes back several hundred years and across many countries, including North and South America, Western, Central, and Eastern Europe, and a bit of the Middle East as well. Um, Anyone who thinks that what's happening in the United States today regarding the political bend towards autocracy in the evangelical Christian community and the Republican party more generally, anyone who thinks that might be about the uniqueness of Donald Trump or this moment in American history may think differently after reading this book. Um, Dr. Gushy, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Let's start with you. Can you tell our listeners about your background and what exactly is this thing called democracy that you believe is worth defending. Uh, thank you for having me on your program, Megan. That was a a fine way to set up the book. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I am a Christian ethics professor. Um, I teaching in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, I've been doing this for about 30 years. Uh, I'm, I am a Christian, a practicing Christian, and, um, and I believe that my vocation is to try to help Christian people um, to be, you might say, the best versions of themselves, um, the best followers of Christ, and the best contributors to their societies. And um, and so in my career, I've addressed a number of different issues, um, probably most notably, uh, my dissertation was on the Holocaust, uh, so I've, I've dealt with genocide and Holocaust-related issues, and uh, I've worked on human rights more broadly, um, marriage, family, sexuality issues, um, uh, a fair amount recently, especially on race-related issues. And uh, there's a through line in my career of dealing with Christian involvement in public life. So so this book is about something I never thought I would have to write about, which is why Christians should be ardent supporters of the democratic system as as a way of governing societies and why some Christians are drifting away from 
democracy towards authoritarianism mm -hmm. for reasons that have to do with the very culture issues that you mentioned. Um, so I think part of taking democracy for granted is we don't really generally have like right at the tip of our tongue what exactly is a democracy. We just know we live in one. Um, but because the democracy is threatened, it actually is providing an occasion for people to interrogate again what it is. So, and that's a big discussion with a lot of literature about it. But basically, I say um, that democracy is a political system in which the people are understood to be the sovereign, in which they covenant together to form a political community. They write the laws of that community on the uh, on the basis of shared principles, um, and everything ultimately comes down to the sovereignty of the people and the rule of law that they have created. So a democracy is able to be contrasted with any political system which the government is owned by a family or an individual um, in which the people are subjects and the sovereign is somebody else. Mm -hmm. In a democracy, the people are sovereign and they elect leaders for short-term service and then rotate them out through democratic elections. And so democracy is, is a way of governing human institutions. It isn't just at the state level. I talk in the book about the variety of other settings in which we govern ourselves, like uh, religious institutions or professional associations or you know clubs or whatever, right? So um, I argue that democracy, though it has some ancient roots in Greece, ancient Greece in a, a period of democratic flourishing, um, democracy in the modern world is a relatively recent development that was a hard-fought achievement um, that swept Europe and much of the rest of the world and appeared to be, uh, at one point, in, like after the fall of communism, it appeared to be the unquestioned premier best practices political system, but that while I believe that democracy is the best available political system, it's not guaranteed in any society. Democracy, because it's a human achievement, can be undone. And there's lots of examples of democracy being undone around us even today and certainly historically. So let's call it a fragile achievement in human self-government that um, has proven to be the best available, but also um, not to be taken for granted. And in the book, you talk about what the threats are, some of the threats are to this. And specifically, you coin, or I think it's a coin, your coinage yeah, yeah. of authoritarian, reactionary Christianity. Can you take us through what, that's a mouthful, can you take us through what does it mean and how should we think about it? Um, I'm actually pretty proud of this formulation because I, I think some, there was a reviewer I saw recently who said it has tremendous explanatory power. Um, that's what you want in academia, right? You want you want things to um, explain reality well. So my uh, you say there's like four four points to this to this uh, term. Reactionary has to do with a posture on the part of some moral traditionalists, usually motivated by faith, a posture of negative reaction to democracy or to uh, legal or cultural or political liberalization. Um, and, 
and as you said earlier, the I tell this story going back hundreds of years, but the most relevant time sequence and most readers immediately understand is the 1960s. Uh, conservative traditionalist Christians are reacting negatively to many, most, or even all of the social changes since the 1960s. And um, so that's the first place. Imagine people who do not accept, you know, most of what has happened since about 1962. Authoritarian uh, means uh, either or both, that they are operate they operate in religious systems that have centralized power so that access to truth and the explanation of what is real and true and right is centralized in popes, bishops, pastors, or sacred texts that are then interpreted by authoritative leaders. Um, and that's, that's a kind of independent reality. You can have a centralized authoritarian religion and support political democracy. You can get there. But I'm especially interested in in the way in which religious authoritarianism can be activated for political authoritarianism under the right conditions. Mm -hmm. um, in which, or um, in which you can see evidence that authoritarian Christian folks have never fully come to terms with the even the the structure of democracy. They they would be more comfortable in a more centralized, monarchical or autocratic kind of environment. Um, so, so I'm talking about Christians who are negatively reacting to liberalizing cultural trends, sex, abortion, race, immigration, media, whatever, um, who have grown frustrated with the democratic process because they don't like the results it has been producing or they never fully accepted the terms of democracy as we have them in the US. Maybe they don't really support the separation of church and state, never really did, but that's the system that they came into. And now they're activated politically to want to, to, want to do something about all these things they don't like, but especially under the influence of Donald Trump here, that political activation has, has taken a dark turn beyond the boundaries of the democratic process. One of the things that you talk about uh, are that all the, well, I shouldn't say all, but the authoritarian reactionary Christians that you talk about in the book, they seem to share an idea of a glorious past, a glorious past that may or may not have actually existed, but a glorious past that was taken or ruined um, and could be recreated or rebuilt if they just had enough power to to make it so. Um, and there's two things about this um, in that I want to sort of posit to you and have you react to. In one, you 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 could think about this in in the way you just described it in our current situation, uh, post civil rights era or mid civil rights era, reacting to that. But I actually would even maybe go back even further and say, like, well, the Civil War is a really good example of a big change that, you know, some aspects of American culture just like never accepted. Um, I right. I mean, it took a while to really realize the extent to which some people are still living in a Confederate mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that really illustrates this point. So you talk about these authoritarian reactionary Christians and this and and they share this idea they're reacting to some kind of glorious 
possibly imaginary, possibly real history that was taken from them or ruined by uh, by someone or something um, and could be so again. And in the book, you put these in the context of secular revolutions and religious counter revolutions. And I found this framing really powerful. Can you explain that framing of the secular revolution, religious counter revolution, and why it's important? Um, and you use several international examples of this, which I think um, really made it come to life uh, for me, and I think maybe for our listeners too. Thank you. Um, I borrowed that phrase from a political uh, philosopher, Michael Walzer, who uh, in a book um, some decades ago talked about uh, modern day Israel, Algeria, and India as countries that were founded as secular states. Um, and then hardly a generation later, there had been a religious counter-revolution to the secular revolution that uh, you might say founded those states or the secularists who um, founded those states. Um, but I, I found the phrase to be um, enormously interesting to describe our own situation. And the more I, and this would be other countries too, you know, but the more I dug around, I actually found examples of Christian right people using the language of, of counter-revolution. So the story is, as you said, once upon a time, this was a godly Christian land. Um, when once to, you know, the men were men and the women were women and uh, and everybody was pure and everybody went to church. And, uh, you know, there's so many different things you can load into an imaginary past, right? Or a semi-imaginary past. It's so easy to idealize the past. I, you see, sometimes people idealize the medieval period, you know, the, the, the land of chivalry and knights and ladies and so on, or or uh, they idealize the revolutionary or the founding generation, maybe the Puritans of New England or the or the um, uh, the founding generation in the U.S., um, uh, turning them all into Christian saints, building a Christian uh, republic. And but then often these folks do not operate from an idea of kind of organic change or um the processes of cultural change that just happen, but instead more of a conspiratorial vision, an organized group of radicals secularized our country, liberalized it, tore it from its religious rooting, um, uh, took over the heights of culture like higher education and the K through 12 school system and the administrative state and, you know, um, uh, media and Hollywood, yeah. and they had the agenda of destroying this religious ethical heritage, and they largely succeeded. And that was the secular revolution of the '60s. Say, and and again, you can see the story being told in other countries with a longer time horizon: 19th century, late 18th century, France and Germany. I, I profile in the book. Okay. So, the, oh, sorry. I thought the 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 telling of the French Revolution through this lens was, uh, was particularly interesting because we often think about the French Revolution very differently, um, and you tell that same story through this lens in a really compelling way. Thank you. Um. So, okay. But if you have revolutionaries who who stole our country, well, yeah. Especially if you demonize them, you, you can't really argue with these people you just have to defeat them so we now need a revolution or a counter-revolutionary vanguard 
of legislators and um, uh, you know uh, jurists and and activists and pastors and so on who will who can take the country back, who can make America or Hungary or Poland or Brazil or whoever great again by by reversing the change. In the book, you, did you notice that I use I picked authoritarian reactionary Christianity partly so I could make the acronym ARC A R C. <laughs> And, and the idea is we can bend the arc of history backwards. And I purposely use that to contrast it with Martin Luther King's idea that the arc of history bends towards justice and that the civil rights movement, it was to be understood as essentially providential progress towards the good. But for the reactionaries that I'm talking about, almost nothing that has happened since the 60s is progress towards the good. It's all deterioration away from the good. And so what we need to do is reverse it. And the appeal of Viktor Orban in Hungary or even Putin in Russia or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in the US, is to, he's the one, these are the men who say, I will be your agent in reversing all of these changes you don't want. And I will be tough enough to stand up to the woke critical race theory liberals, you know, fill in, fill in the language there. Uh, I alone am tough enough to deliver to you the reversals of these liberalizing changes. And I will do that for you. And to the extent that they succeed, they are beloved by the, the religious traditionalists who they are catering to. And that more than anything, I think helps to explain the popularity of Trump with conservative Catholics and conservative evangelicals in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense. And also it uncovers something. I think when we start to look at the situation in the United States and particularly with Trump in the context of these other, uh, the, what has happened in other countries at other times, we start to see that it's not so singular. It's not, it makes it both more terrifying and less terrifying. Um, but it it also provides some instruction on how these things can go when you see them not as individual uh, unique instances, but rather um, echoing uh, e echoing stories that are that are telling a similar story across time and space. Um, one of the things I, I I wanted to ask you about, uh, and I, I have a little bit of it background in French history, which is why I kind of keep coming back to it. Um, but I, I was very struck by uh, some of the French history that you brought in to the story, um, and particularly uh, how there was this secular revolution of the French Revolution, and then a religious counter-revolution. And then we sort of take that through a bunch of time, and we we get to World War II in Europe. And I think that there is this uh, somewhat mythologized sense in the modern era, in the current era, I should say, of um, the the resistance, the French resistance. And one of the stories that you brought out, which I think tells the story in microcosm that was happening across much of Europe at the time, was that there were people within French culture, um, within French leadership, who we're not really looking at this uh, conflict with Germany as a fight between France and Germany, but they were looking at it through the lens of this culture fight um, and responding to it in a, almost in a positive way that, um, 
what the what the Germans would bring was actually a positive effect on France. And that was part of what made capitulation much easier in that society. Can you can you talk about that a little bit and how that works from a Christian perspective? Yeah. Um, well, whenever I speak to a, a real historian uh, about these specific country studies that I'm doing, I, I'm always listening to see if I got the story right, or at least roughly <laughs> right. Um, so I'm glad that you're engaging me on France. Um, not too many people are able to do that. You know, um, same with Germany. There's a whole chapter on Germany that also moves right to the brink of the Nazi era. And I think in some ways the stories are similar. Um, I think that France had not at all resolved its secular revolution, religious counter-revolution issues when the Nazis invaded in 1940. And um, add to it the dimension of socialism and communism, which which I talk about in the book too. So, so your French left, like your left in in many parts of Europe and in the U.S. Even some of them were leaning not just socialist but Marxist, communist, and um, uh, and then on the right you had various kinds of nationalisms and sometimes racisms. Some of them were sympathetic to the Nazi movement. Some of them were not, but. But the vast left-right struggle that was all over Europe ever since the the Russian Revolution was present in France. Um, I remember reading uh, one of these historians, I forget which one, said the left and right hated each other in France more than they more than they seemed to care about the survival of their own country. Mm. Um, and that actually gives me worry about our country too. The way the left and right hate each other so deeply that leaves a country vulnerable to enemies who would march right in where we're, while we're shooting at each other, right? So um, to the extent that national socialism was understood as representing authoritarianism, uh, religious, somehow at least cultural traditionalism, um, the suppression of the minority, right? The putting, putting the non-historically Christian non-historically French or German people back in their place, the immigrant, the Jew, um, patriarchal, putting women back in their place, culturally conservative, emphasizing family, women should be home having babies, uh, men should be fighting for the fatherland. Um, so the Vichy regime that, that the Nazis ended up um, uh, cooperating with had that kind of traditionalist vision. And so cooperating with at least some aspects of the Nazi program was was not all that uncomfortable for them, right? But meanwhile, you had the resistance. And yes, uh, we, we glorify the resistance. And a lot of people gave their lives to fight Nazism. But it needs to be remembered that part of who they were fighting against was Vichy and collaboration and so the French spent many decades after World War II sorting out who did what and who was responsible for what and what do we make of Marshal Patton and what do we make of the Vichy government and are we going to execute these people? What are we going to do with them, you know? And so some of the people that I mentioned in that chapter were in the Vichy government. Some of them collaborated with sending Jews off to their deaths. Um, some of them went above and beyond what the Nazis asked for. Um, it's a it's a dark chapter in French history, but but the relevance to our story, I think, is sometimes the the 
tribal um, force of cultural traditionalism over against liberalization is more powerful than any other single force, more powerful than patriotism, more powerful than humanitarianism or a sense of shared humanness, and more powerful than a commitment to democracy itself. Yeah. I mean, you talk, you have in, in the book, you include case studies of France, Germany, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Brazil, the United States. And in all of these cases, at least as I was reading it, I kept thinking each, each one is its own story. And yet each tells this story that is much more complicated and much more violent and, and terrifying. Um, and what, at coming as an American, looking at our own scenario, you can look at all these and see exactly what you're talking about, see where these structural challenges of what is the vision of better, what does better look like, is better about a unified nation state, meaning all the people in that nation state, or is better about just a piece of that, a certain vision of what that what those of who should be leading who should be setting the agenda um and that in the authoritarian reactionary christianity perspective tends to not so much be about all the people in the nation and more to be about a particular uh vision of of who who should be leading yeah um one one definition of nationalism is um an excessive uh regard for the the worth and value of your own nation um and a, a diminution of the worth and value of other nations right but if nationalism takes place within a country then it can manifest as a narrowing of who counts as being part of the nation and actually this gets back to the even the birth of the modern nation state if a nation i mean the greek word for that is ethnos which means people if a nation is primarily understood as the political expression of an ethnic group, um, then almost by definition, members of racial minorities or ethnic minorities or immigrant populations can be defined as not quite members of the nation. They're not quite part of the founding people. They're other. They may be citizens eventually. They may be included within the geographical territory, but they're not us. They're other. And Part of the nationalism dimension of this, I think in the US and in other countries too, is we are the real Hungarians or the real Russians or the real Poles or the real Americans. We traditional Christians, we traditional majority Christians, which in Russia would be Orthodox and in Poland would be Catholic uh, and in the US would be Protestant or even evangelical. Um, and but now here are all of you. And while we might be able to tolerate that you're here, we don't tolerate that you are calling the shots in any way as to the direction that the country is going, um, because you're not the real nation. We're the real nation. And I think that is part of it. If you add Christianity to that, it's yet another marker. If you add race to it, it's a huge marker. And I think it is part of it. Um, people are more veiled about that sometimes than other times. Um, and if you add uh, patriarchy to it, then it's we men are supposed to be in charge, not women. Um, and if you add immigration to it, then it's we native born men are supposed to be in charge, not you people who come from other places. 
and have names that don't sound like English and Dutch names, right? Um, so the work by um, Whitehead and Perry and others on Christian nationalism has essentially done a good job in locating all of that stuff being loaded onto a resentment and uh, an agenda of reclaiming the nation for those who are believed to rightly deserve to run it. And I think, again, that's part of Trump's appeal. Um, he exudes degrading speech about everybody other than our people, us. And the us is white men, essentially. And the Christian here doesn't have to mean anything related to practice. It doesn't have to mean church going or moral or anything. It just is non-Muslim, non-Hindu, non-atheist, non-Jewish, non-secular. And so here's how Trump can leverage his very, very, very vague Christian identity to advance that agenda. But the same thing happens in other countries. Putin leverages the Orthodox tradition and um, the Law and Justice Party in Poland uh, leveraged the Catholic tradition and um, and so on. Yeah. I'm glad you uh, went there. I actually, my the next question I would like to ask you about is about the how this reflects and is used by Putin today. I think that it's particular. It was particularly timely as we're going through the Ukrainian-Russian war, and you can sort of see this in action in in real time. Um, and given the current situation there and the split in support for Ukraine and support for Putin's Russia, um, and you can see that the evangelical community is also kind of split. Um, can can you put that in context of of your book and? What is Putin doing there, and and how is it related to this idea of the the Ark? <laughs> yeah, um, before he invaded Ukraine in a big way in 2022, he had a surprising amount of support and resonance on this um, on the Christian right, um, and you had people like Franklin Graham saying he's the kind of Christian leader that we need. Okay. Uh, which is appalling. And I, I picture Franklin Graham's father uh, rolling over in his grave uh, at the idea. But the strongman Christian ruler who is willing to crack a few heads uh, to fight off the forces of European slash Western decadence and liberalism, often symbolized by uh, gay rights movements or even just gay people lgbt people um and so he's the he positioned himself more and more as the defender of russian and then slavic and then european christian civilization and then when he went in um to ukraine in 2022 uh he and the ideologists around him including patriarch kirill of the orthodox church um basically said this is essentially a counter-revolution against the incursion of European decadent liberalism into Ukraine, which is oppressing all those good Orthodox people in Ukraine. So, and gay, gay rights parades were the symbol that Patriarch Kirill picked up on. So the reason we need this special military operation is to push back secular decadent liberalism from Ukraine, which really belongs to the Russian sphere of, civil, of of Orthodox Christian civilization. And now the use of the language of Nazi to describe the Ukrainians is bizarre. It doesn't fit exactly this paradigm. 
Um, but hey, any anything anything you can throw at somebody when you're when you're in a war, right? You you try, but but I, but the the language that I talk about in the book is um, Putin as the authoritarian Christian leader who is reclaiming the vast nation of Ukraine for Orthodox Christian civilization against the EU and you know liberal democratic and tolerant and inclusive values, which does include. I mean, the EU is committed to human rights and. Uh, democratization, including uh, human rights for gay people. So that becomes uh, a wedge issue that can be played on the part of Putin. Um, I think that that there is some sympathy for this vision on the part of some on the Republican side. And that may explain partly why they're holding up aid to Ukraine right now. Um, and it you can never downplay the extent to which uh, Trump is loyal to Putin, never, ever criticizes Putin, always aligns his policy proposals with Putin's interests. And because of the sway of Trump, a lot of the Republicans just go along with him. It may not be ideological. It's just he's the guy in charge and we have to have to be under his wings so we don't get attacked. But but the ideological piece of it, um, same thing with with Orban, who is less of a dictator, but it's the same idea defender of Christian civilization against secular, pluralistic, democratic liberalism. Uh, whatever we're going to do with politics, it's going to fight off the liberals. And um, in, in, in every case, same is true in Poland, in every case it involves snipping away at, at the procedural and constitutional protections that exist in a, in a real democracy. Yeah. So let's come back to democracy. So we've, we've gotten a sense of what is this democracy thing that we want to protect. And we've gotten a sense of this, uh, this arc of authoritarian reactionary Christians who are fighting uh, against, or uh, are maybe not fighting against democracy so much, but are willing to undermine democracy in order to protect the, the values that they hold dear Right. Um, in your book, you you also make a call. I, I think of it as like a call to Christians today to defend democracy. And you point to a few traditions in our past that can be called on as part of that. Um, and so in the book, you talk about the Baptist and the Black Christian democratic traditions. I'd love if you don't mind, take us through that and and what are you asking of people there? What are you saying? And then what are you asking people? I'm I'm asking Christians to remember pro-democratic strands of our own tradition, um, which I think have largely been lost, especially when you're talking about white traditional values evangelicals, right? Um, and so there's some historical digging to do here. If you start, if you go chronologically, the place to start would be the covenantal tradition that comes out of the Puritan movement in uh, 16th and 17th century England, contributed to their short-lived revolution, but also planted the seeds for uh, the strengthening of parliamentary democracy there and the weakening of monarchical power eventually, right? Um, but the Puritans uh, understood, well, they practiced a church life that was not top down from the king down to through the bishops to the clergy to the people the church belonging you might say to the sovereign uh, but they practice congregational uh rule in which 
uh, the people form churches um, for themselves and govern themselves under a covenantal understanding of uh, community. And in retrospect, this covenantalism, which they then wanted to apply to the nation as a whole, they wanted Great Britain to be a covenantal theocracy, basically. That failed, but the covenantal vision is actually a step towards democratization because the, the people form the polity and then write a constitution and rules and then govern themselves. <laughs> That's one reason why the Puritans were threatening to the uh, to the monarch was um, the monarchs understood that covenantalism was a threat to royal authority and to the whole top-down vision of power. Right, and you're talking about the uh, the English Parliament and the idea that the king is beholden to the Parliament rather than the other way around. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. of course, a lot of blood was shed over that. Eventually, after a king was executed and after uh, a civil war. They moved in an evolutionary dimension over several hundred years towards a parliamentary democracy with a king that survived. Right? Uh, interesting. Only the only the English could do that. The British and they did it. Um, but but then the the Puritans who left uh, England and came here, they carried their covenantal vision with them, and gradually it became, I would say, part of the understanding of democracy and democratic self government here. Some of the theocratic elements eventually weakened, but the covenantal vision survived. When you think about writing a constitution and signing your name to it and saying, here's what we're going to be governed by and electing leaders who are obligated to take sacred vows to the constitution, that's a covenant. That's that's not that's that's a covenant. And it has kind of religious overtones to it, uh, certainly uh, covenantal overtones. So that's the first one. And then I mentioned on the radical wing of the Puritans were the Baptists. And the Baptists were more separatist. They they did not have a, a vision of ruling of the United Kingdom. Um, and they wanted to be left alone to govern themselves. They were even more democratic, even more egalitarian, um, uh, and even more suspicious of centralized power. So uh, the Baptists, um, including a man I, I am fascinated with named Richard Overton, were by the mid 17th century were making arguments for limited state power, the separation of church and state, um, religious liberty, and then to authoritarian government, human rights protections, all the kind of stuff that we associate with liberal democracy. They were making a religious argument for that in the 17th century, mid 17th century, before John Locke, before social contract theory. So yay for the Baptists. And then when you come over here, um, the ratification of the Constitution in the U.S. required, the Baptists said, we're going to need a Bill of Rights, and we're going to need religious liberty, separation of church and state, disestablishment of religion, or we're not going to support it. And that's why, that's one reason why Puritan theocracy was not how we were founded. We were founded on a separationist plan. Baptists had a lot to do with that. So hooray for the Baptists. The Black Christian democratic tradition is, is easier to understand uh, African-Americans were brought here and enslaved by people who claimed to be Christians and uh, and who claimed to be building a democracy. African-Americans knew in their bones from the 17th century forward that this was a very flawed thing, uh, that it was a, a white ethnocracy, a slaveocracy rather than a real democracy. And so as, as they gained freedom, as they fought for freedom, 
as they articulated their vision of the good society, it involved um, it involved real democracy that that included everybody on equal terms, multiracial democracy. So you see it from the 17th century, but certainly with voices like Frederick Douglass in the in you know what is July 4th to me that speech. Um, I think it's called what is July 4th to the slave maybe. Um, to say, here you are with your fireworks celebrating your democracy. Well, hooray for you. When are you going to include us on equal terms? And the church, which the black church, which became the center of black communal life for, for decades and decades, became the headquarters of democratic organizing and democratic activism, which we saw most notably in the civil rights years. So that chapter says all over the world, when people are looking for democratic inspiration, they find their way to the black democratic activist tradition in the US, which has Christian overtones. By the way, one reviewer said, there's a lot of other sources you could have mentioned, like there's a, there's a British uh, democratic socialist tradition, there's a Catholic democratic tradition, especially visible after Vatican II, uh, there's democratic voices in the Orthodox world. In other words, um, you don't have to look far to find deeply committed pro-democracy voices all over the Christian world. But this is a fight within the Christian family because there's plenty of authoritarian voices too. So this has been a 400-year-old argument within Christianity as well as outside of Christianity. I think some of that history about the Baptist tradition is is very surprising. Um, I'm even in seminary, not a Baptist seminary, but still. Um and I, I didn't know, uh, I found that a, a, an almost shocking uh, set of, of uh, a view of history for, within the Baptist tradition. Um, because that's certainly that not- sad Because one reason is because when you think of the most visible Baptists today, they're the Southern Baptists. Yeah. And I would say since the 90s, the Southern Baptists have in many ways abandoned this tradition. And, and now- are in the hip pocket of authoritarian reactionary Christianity. They're part of it. If you were to take all the Southern Baptists out of Trump's coalition, he could never win, but they're there at 80 to 85%. So um, yes, it's it's a law, it's a largely lost heritage. But if you ask uh, Baptist historians um uh and non-Southern Baptist Baptists, um you know, the Northern Baptists, the Progressive Baptists, the American Baptist Convention, they know this, they know this story and are trying to protect it and to advance that vision today. Um, as we start to get to the end of our time together, um, can you, there, there's so much in this book. I came away, I actually had notes. I could have, I was thinking about four different interviews that we could have had. Um, there's so many directions to go, but what I'd like to hear from you is, what you would like our audience to take away from the book? Um, well, at one level, the book is is explicitly addressed to Christians, begging them to turn away from authoritarian reactionary Christianity, um, asking them to reconnect with traditions that are both faithfully Christian and faithfully democratic. So it's a it's an altar call. On before it's too late, could we protect our democracy, please? Okay, so that's that's the main thing. Um, but you might say it's also a story about how every religious tradition is contested. There's authoritarian Judaism and democratic Judaism. There's authoritarian Islam and more democratic Islam. Um, there's authoritarian Buddhism and democratic egalitarian Buddhism, you name it. 
human tendencies crisscross and there is no one version of a religion. So so I, I think of religions as essentially contested spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't want to essentialize Christianity teaches this. I'm trying to teach the, you might say, the argument, teach the fight. But to say, here's a story, Christians who came out of an authoritarian and ancient tradition gradually came to embrace democracy. Mm-hmm. And they made arguments from within their faith to do so, and they helped to build the modern democratic world. And I want to tell that story, and I want us to continue the building process instead of abandoning it. Amazing. Okay. I, there's so many different ways I came out of the book thinking, well, what about India? What's going on in India right now? What about Duterte's regime? What about, you know, there's just so many places where we're seeing this play out in real time. And your book sort of captures both the moment and the history um, in, in a really compelling and and page-turning kind of way. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, we'd like to uh, always give our listeners something to look forward to. Um, so I'd like to ask you for a recommendation for our audience. It could be something of yours or something else, uh, whatever you think they might enjoy. Well, um, I'll do I'll do two. Um, I want to honor my friend Robert Jones in his book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. I don't know if you've encountered that book yet, but studying events in three different American cities, uh, Robert, I call him Robbie, he's, that's what his friends call him, um, does the archaeology of how white supremacy has played itself out in those cities. And he interrogates both treatment of the indigenous populations and treatment of African-Americans. Um, and um, and so uh, it's his most serious work on issues related to indigenous American history and uh, how white supremacy um, has impacted indigenous population here. And so I honor that. And I, like, I, uh, and I want everybody to read that book. As for what's next from me, I have a new book coming out probably the next three months, four months called The Moral Teachings of Jesus, um, and it is an exposition of 40 teachings of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. I think that part of what has gone wrong with American Christianity on this arc side that I've described is almost a complete loss of contact with the actual content of the teachings of Jesus. I think this thing is called Christianity, but it has almost nothing to do with Jesus. And so part of my pushback is to say, okay, well, let's go back See what he actually said. Talk about it. So that's what the next book is about. That'll be out <clears throat> with Cascade Books sometime in the next few months. Great. Well, we will look forward to that. Um, and it is interesting, actually. I just came from a class this morning where we were talking about uh, about teachings of Jesus and history and how very, very, very different they are. So I think that it is in the zeitgeist, not only in our general culture, um, definitely within the Christian community. Um, but I think that what you're, what you're bringing forward is something that even if you're not inside of the Christian community, um, it has a lot to teach us about how people are looking at current events and the lens through which they see and understand culture and improvement and ideals. All of those things have to do with what their vision is of what is right and what is better. That's, right. that, that's part of their construal of their of their own religious tradition, if that's where they come from. And, you know, I think that this 
construal of Christianity as fundamentally toxic, the one that we're talking about here today, and I'm trying to fight it, have been for a while. So, uh, but there's different ways to fight it, and presenting what Jesus actually taught is one way to do that. Well, we look forward to it, and I think we'll leave it there now for the interview. Uh, Reverend Professor David Gushy, it has been such a pleasure to discuss your book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Megan. It's been a pleasure.